This episode of the Business of Agriculture is brought to you by Nori. Feeling left out of carbon markets? Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers. Well, greetings and welcome to another fantastic episode of the Business of Agriculture podcast. Got a great show for you today talking to Jeff Cooper. He's the president and CEO of the Renewable Fuels Association. Mr. Cooper was on this podcast two years ago. You might remember we're recording this, by the way, right now. It's March 31st of 2022. He was on two years ago when I picked up the Wall Street Journal and I read an article that we were going to run out of carbon dioxide because of all the shutdowns and the disruption to the economy when governments forced these lockdowns and change everything under the guise of COVID, well, all of a sudden, ethanol plants shut down. Ethanol's big byproduct is carbon dioxide. So if you like this discussion, I would encourage you to go back two years ago and find the discussion with Mr. Cooper then. So we talked about ethanol. We talked about the, the, the old thing, the supply chain changes and all that. So anyway, Mr. Cooper, thanks for being here today. We're going to talk, by the way, dear listener, about the war on ethanol and the strange bedfellows that uh, being anti-ethanol is created. We got environmentalists with Fox News hosts teaming up to be anti-ethanol. That's what we're going to be talking about today. Mr. Cooper, thanks for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Damien. I'm looking forward to the conversation and, and great to great to be back. I don't like most people. I think that it's pretty plainly evident. In fact, I'm I'm a misanthropic son of a bitch. I hate humanity in general. I make exceptions for certain individuals, and you're one of them. Uh, I wanted to be anti you two years ago, and it turns out your bald headed cantankerousness <laughs> and and then and then your ability to to warm up just all of a sudden won me over. So you're I'm you're just a, a big repeat. teddy bear. I'm just a big teddy bear, Damien. All right. So you're a repeat guest here on the business of agriculture. Um, I thought of you first thing. I'm driving in my truck. I pull into the grocery store. I'm listening to Fox News and Gutfeld. Uh, their commentary with Comedy Guy starts going on about ethanol, how it's worse for the environment than gasoline. He went through this whole thing about why we should just never have ethanol. And he was a little bit on point with some of his data. He was off point on some of his data because he had gotten them from a pretty crappy source. Um, then. I'm thinking that study that came out was in February says that ethanol is worse than gasoline. I'm like, who's funding this? Cause I always look at follow the money. Mm-hmm. And then I'm like, you know, I ought to call up my buddy Cooper and have him on. And right then I come across this thing, the Atlantic, a left leaning magazine is anti ethanol. And it's not just because they want to favor gasoline. It's because they say that ethanol is starving people now by taking corn off the market. We hadn't heard that argument, food versus fuel for about 12, 13 years. Talk to me, my friend. Yeah, well, you're right, Damien. We're catching it from all directions right now. We're catching it from the left. We're catching it from the right. Uh, And I think it's very clear to us that there is a well-orchestrated, well-coordinated, well-funded campaign against ethanol and, and, and really all renewable fuels uh, in the works right now. And, and there's a, a, a strange assortment of odd bedfellows that are really teaming up uh, to try and make a run at us. And, and this, 
you know, this has happened at various points in the in the ethanol industry's history. It seems like every time the industry starts to get some traction and starts to get a leg up and it appears that we're you know, setting up for that next phase of growth uh, in, in our industry, that's when the enemies come out of the woodwork and, and start taking shots at us. And you're right, it's, it's bizarre for us to see on the same day we're getting hit by Greg Gutfeld on Fox News, we're, we're getting, you know, hit by Tom Mother, jo- Mother Jones. Yeah, Mother Jones Digest or whatever. I mean, yeah. you couldn't find two more polar opposite personalities and they're using the same talking points and the same arguments. Uh, and I, I, that makes it pretty clear to us that there is a you know, PR firm that's probably taken dollars from the oil industry, taken dollars from other opponents of our industry uh, to put this whole thing in motion. And, and, it, and it isn't just the oil industry, right? We, we, we know that there are, there's this whole crowd of, of people out there that, that don't want any liquid fuels at all. They think we all ought to be driving uh, solar powered electric vehicles. And so they're going to do anything they can to, uh, you know, put a, put a monkey wrench in, in the works on, on biofuels. And again, if you go back to that study you're talking about and you do follow the money and look at who paid for that, well, guess what? It was the National Wildlife Federation, which might sound like a really nice, uh, you know, uh, righteous group that does great things for our, our, our wildlife in this country, but they are really a group of, of extreme uh, environmentalists that that have had it on their agenda for years yeah. to do everything they can to shut down production agriculture. All right, Jeff, let's just do I, I agreed. And um, I think anybody listening to this, you know, they all know that we are pro agricultural people. But I've also I've also been. Uh, and when you came on the program two years ago, I said, let me tell you, I've made this statement to my ag audiences for six, eight, nine years. Ethanol was a short-term solution to a long-term problem. The short-term solution being to burn through uh, supply, and and it does. Ethanol is using what thirty-six to thirty-eight percent of our corn crop, and the problem that it's the longer-term problem is that we generally have always had too much corn. And I always reference the fact that because I'm 53, uh, 52 years old and I love history, I remember the PIC program in the nineteen eighties. Payment in kind. We paid corn producers in corn to not produce corn, hence payment in kind. The idea was we would double burn through the supply. And uh, remarkably, that still wasn't enough to bring corn above $1.60 a bushel. And, uh, you know, long, lo and behold, ethanol comes along really, I'd say, late 90s, early 2000s. And it's a godsend. And now all of a sudden we got a place to put this corn. But I always said it's a short term solution because eventually there's going to be forces lining up against ethanol, A, and B, generally when there's this much farmers overproduce. So I figured we'd still end up with an oversupply situation. And until a couple of years ago, we kind of have. So we got to, we got to admit that I've never been anti-ethanol. I've only pointed out the, the short-term nature of it, because I knew that something was going to happen. Either we would just oversupply and overproduce. We'd go to 110 million acres of corn and all of a sudden still have too much corn. It wouldn't be worth anything. Or there'd be forces that came out against it. When I started seeing these forces coming out against it, it even made me bristle a little bit because who in the hell, when the February study came out, Jeff, would say, wait a minute, ethanol is worse for the environment than fossil fuels. I'm like, First off, I'm not anti-fossil fuel, but right. producing corn in Indiana and then making it into grain alcohol, pretty damn good for the environment. You've got the C carbon capture of a 
a field of corn that can produce 240 bushel corn is grabbing a lot of carbon out of the sky. And then you're keeping it close. It's going 18 miles over to the Louis Dreyfus plant uh, in, in, in Manchester, Indiana, or wherever the hell it is by my farm. And I'm like, wait a minute, this, this don't make sense. Yep. You know, as much as I'm a realist about ethanol, not just a, a gung ho uh, zealot, I'm like, wait a minute, where did this study come from? So tell us about what the study said. And you already pointed out, we already know who funded it was a group that's anti to uh, what we do. Yeah. And, and, you know, again, if you look at what the study says, because it is completely ridiculous for, for them to suggest that the, the overall carbon footprint of corn ethanol is somehow worse. Yeah then the, the carbon footprint of gasoline just doesn't make any sense. And so, you know, we have dug into that study and, and a number of others have as well. And really the, the, the way that they reach that conclusion is to string together a whole bunch of crazy assumptions about what farmers actually do when they make planning decisions in the springtime. Uh, and, and really their, their suggestion or their hypothesis is because of growth in ethanol production, farmers have gone out and they have chopped down their woodlots and they have drained their wetlands and they have converted all their CRP um, and they've gone into native prairie and plowed up that, that ground that had this high carbon storage. And when you, you know, when you sum up the carbon emissions related to those so-called land use changes, that's what they say makes uh, corn ethanol's carbon footprint worse than gasoline. But the what's, thing remar- is- what's remarkable is that the person reading this, then again, that's what the study and then the study gets quoted and worse yet, quoting a study that's already got some bad parameters. And then, Jeff, putting it in, let's say, Mother Jones, which is sure. people that would want to live in teepees and, 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 you know, smoke pot all day. And then the readers of The Atlantic, which are more um, coastal liberal affluent people. And that's a true story. That's who their readership is. I'm not making any judgments. Right. They've never been on a grain farm. They've never been in Iowa. Right. They call it flyover country. Right. And so they might say, well, it turns out, you know what these farmers did? They just went and bulldozed all the forests and planted corn. It's like, well, yeah, in 1840, <laughs> we, we, we bulldozed a forest in my part of the world since I was ever, you know what I mean? Exactly. It's just, it's remarkable. Yeah, and, and that's the thing. I mean, it's and, and it's not hard for anybody, whether they're a reader of The Atlantic or a viewer of Greg Gutfeld or anybody else that, that hears this, it, it would take them 10 minutes to go onto USDA's website and, and, and fact check some of the stuff that they're hearing and look at, you know, has corn acreage really expanded in the U.S.? Uh, yeah, it's expanded somewhat over the past couple decades, partly because of ethanol, partly because of other factors. But, but how, you know, what has that increase in corn acreage come from? Has it come from, you know, chopping down forest and, and plowing under native grassland? No, it's come from wheat. It's come from pot and it's come from crop switching. Yes, there's been a little bit of CRP that has come back into crop production. Don't forget CRP was cropland at one time before it was CRP. So, you know, it's really easy to pick apart this stuff, but you're right. Oftentimes, the damage has been done because somebody heard the talking point one time yeah. from Greg Gutfeld and you can't get their attention to go see if it's true or not. Right. So, yeah, see, and I always point this out that facts, certainly science doesn't matter to a scientifically illiterate populace, but also facts can even be a struggle. And I usually try to present facts with anecdotes and, and reality. And here's one that I always can tell people the reality, the state of Indiana, my home state, one of the I states, one of the big five producers of corn. Also, we have ethanol plants in Indiana. 
we have more forested acres today than we did 100 years ago. And be like, no, that can't be right. I heard that they're bulldozing. I'm like, bullshit. I put in acres of tree plantings as the Conservation Reserve Program. The Conservation Reserve Program went into effect 1986, right? 85, 6. So it's been in effect now for uh, over 30 years. And uh, we have this situation where we've, we've paid incentivized forest forest plantings. There are more forested acres in Indiana than there were 100 years ago. The average person does not know that. Did corn acres grow, as you pointed out? Yes. Not because we bulldozed out rainforests in, in, in the United States. That may have happened in Brazil 30 years ago. Doesn't happen here. Right. We did grow corn acres by taking them from some other crops. And yep. then this is where Absolutely. I want to get you to the Atlantic's piece. But uh, the idea that we did this at, to the detriment of humanity it was because of the economics, period. And right. there's a reason we don't grow flax. Uh, at the end of Flax Mill Road, where I was raised as a kid, there has yep. never been a flax field nor a mill when, from the time I was born 50-some years ago. But at one point, there was a flax mill there. Sure. We don't grow flax there, and it ain't because we're anti-flax. It's because corn makes money, and we're better at producing the shit. <laughs> that's what it comes down Absolutely to. Absolutely right. And that's you know really the point the Atlantic was trying to make as well, because of because of growth in corn ethanol, uh, the U.S. is no longer the world's leading wheat producer. And so, um, you know, shame on us for not growing more wheat that we could send to the Ukraine right now. It's like, what in the world are you talking about? Now, now let's just back that one up, because I have non-ag people listen to this. The Atlantic magazine. And again, I've I've purchased it. In fact, one of their articles I really liked, it was about the whole scam of higher education and how the rich uh, play the play the uh, the game so well compared to middle class. That's mm-hmm. a very good article of the Atlantic. You can look it up. And I've disagreed with many things that they've come up with, but I really like that piece when they are saying the assertion that because of corn ethanol in the United States, the poor are starving and around the world because we should be growing more wheat. Wheat acreage began declining before ethanol became a thing. Am I right? Absolutely, absolutely. Wheat acreage absolutely. in the United States because. We, we, Yes, wheat acres uh, peaked in the early 1980s in the U.S. Uh, and, and had already fallen precipitously before anybody was even thinking about ethanol. Ethanol, right. right. Yep. Yeah. So and it was because, again, before ethanol, we stopped planting as much wheat and we've done less wheat seedings uh, for a long, long time. I think it was three years ago was the historic low for United States. And contrary to what uh, a liberal arts major that pins articles for The Atlantic might say, it's not because we wanted to starve everybody. It was truly a matter of economics. There's another thing about highest and best use. If you've ever sold a piece of commercial real estate, you're, you're, if you, you would look at it and an intelligent person would say, highest and best use. Yeah. Should this corner be uh, at, at the busiest intersection? Should it be a commercial lot or should it be uh, out here to raise sheep? Well, of course, you'd say highest and best use. Let's sell that corner for uh, to build a shopping center, whatever. We have to do the same thing in, uh, in agriculture. Absolutely. My fields in Indiana could be in wheat, but we can grow wheat in places that are pretty crappy. And yep. so highest and best use, we switched over because highest and best use was because we were better at producing corn. We're the best in the world yep. versus wheat. There are developing countries, countries with poorer soils that can still, that don't have adequate rainfall that can produce some wheat. Right. And the, that seemed to be lost in this article in the Atlantic. Yeah, it does. I mean, you look at the, the the Black Sea region, right, where where all this turmoil is happening today, and and they they recognized 
in the 1990s and early part of the 2000s that they have a comparative advantage. Kind of post-Soviet Russia realized that, hey, we can, we can grow a lot of wheat over here. We can do it cheaper than they can in the U.S. We're closer to the major export markets for wheat, whether it's Egypt or Turkey or China. Um, so, yeah, I mean, markets have a way of changing and adjusting and, and, and economics is a funny thing, right? And, and it's, you know, to try and explain some of these things uh, with a simple soundbite that blames ethanol um, yeah. is just missing the forest for the trees. I, I felt bad to be honest with you, because as much as you thought I was uh, being given tough love to ethanol for all of my years on the speaking circuit, here I was now feeling like I needed to give you a hug. <laughs> I came to you, want to give you a hug. Before we get back to the hugs and the interesting commentary about strange bedfellows, I want to remind our listeners, first off, remember, this is not just an audio, it's also a video. We put all of these, we post them on my YouTube channel, go to Damian Mason channel, just go to YouTube, type in Damian Mason channel, please hit subscribe. It'll help me get more viewers and we need people to see this kind of information. Also share this with your non-ag friends. We do a lot of preaching to the choir in ag. And one of my proudest things is that I get some reach outside of ag. When I'm on Cheddar News or on Newsmax TV, I have a lot of non-ag people that keep up with it. The more you share this around with your non-ag people, the better, because they need to hear the truth and the reality of agriculture and the economics of it. Also, I want to remind you to check out the great work I'm doing over at Extreme Ag. Go to extremeag.farm. There's no E on the front of it, just extremeag.farm, uh, a consortium of five forward-thinking, successful farming operations, setting yields and doing trials on their farms, business practices, new products, all kinds of stuff. I'm helping them create the content. You can check out the videos. It's free. Just go to extremeag.farm. All right, Strange Bedfellows. The study comes out funded by National Wildlife Federation, you said? That's right. And here's what's interesting. They're anti-ethanol, but one of the big World Wildlife Fund, and this is a few years ago, most people would be shocked. Again, what happens, as you know, um, these groups that are kind of environmental get taken over by environmentalists, right? I mean, you, you're a wildlife guy. I'm sure. a wildlife guy. I, I love wildlife. I own woods. I go hiking in the mountain preserve and look at birds. But I don't give money to the National Wildlife Federation because they get overtaken by extremists. So those extremists somehow decided they were anti-ethanol. I don't think it was just them. I think there's another, I think, follow the money. What the hell happened? That, that's right. I, and I do think if you're, if you're able to step back and, and really connect the dots, uh, what, what you're saying is exactly correct. There, there are connections uh, behind the scenes that that a you know casual member of the National Wildlife Federation, somebody who loves watching uh, deer and, 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 and is a bird watcher, they may not know um, what sort of political activity the organization they are funding is, is really up to. Um, and, and we are convinced, that there is an unholy alliance uh, of some of these, and you know, quasi environmental groups with some of the oil companies and and, and the oil industry, mm. uh, and they are hell bent on snuffing out or trying to snuff out uh, any competition uh, for for petroleum, and and we've seen it over the you know over the decades. And you might wonder why in the world would would a, a wild a purported wildlife group. Um, you know, have any interest in partnering up with with the oil industry. Uh, and, and we think there are a, a number of reasons that they would. And, and one of those I mentioned earlier, um, they think, hey, if we can if we can work with 
with, uh, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. If we can work with one of our enemies to snuff out one of our other enemies, um, you know, that's great. And then we'll move on and, and, and take on these guys later. Uh, and when we think there's some, you know, some, some of that is what's happening. Uh, and like I said, a lot of these environmental groups claim to be big supporters of electric vehicles. Um, and so it doesn't bother them to, to snuggle up with the oil guys uh, to try and take on what they see as the biggest competition to electric vehicles uh, in the future, which is renewable fuels. Yeah, bio, bio, biofuels. Yeah, yeah. biofuels. So it's an interesting thing. It was several years ago, you know, the anti-GMO debate has damn near gone away. Is I would say 2014 to about 16, 17, there was about a three-year window in there where it was just at a fever pitch. Um, and then I kind of predicted, I said, eventually this won't matter. All this debating over law labels. I said, just yeah. tell me, you just went and drank a, a beverage out of your refrigerator. Did you read the label? What's the, on that label? And they would be hard pressed to remember other than if it was a Coke, it was a red can with cursive writing, or if it was, uh, you know, a, a Pepsi would be the, the Pepsi, whatever. Yep. And I said, eventually this won't matter. This whole GMO debate goes away because the consumer is going to lose interest. It's, it's um, at a fever pitch right now, but eventually the labels become ubiquitous. Nobody knows if you pick up a gallon of milk, it says, still says no RBST. I can ask any of my suburban neighbors out here in Arizona, Hey, what's RBST? I don't know. No Do you know there's none of it in your milk? I, I Yeah, maybe. I, I guess maybe I remember seeing that on a label. It's recombinant bovine somatotropin, which is a hormone. And I can go through the whole thing. So I'm a dairy farm guy. Yep. The point is GMOs. And I'm getting off on this because, uh, Mr. Cooper, there was this crazy thing where the World Wildlife Fund had to take a position and said, we are for modern agriculture. We support genetic engineered food crops. And you know that the zealot environmentalists that give money to the World Wildlife Fund came out of there, lost their minds. And why did the the, some brave person within World Wildlife Fund said, if we're about protecting biodiversity in third world countries, developing countries where they're doing slash and burn agriculture and bulldozing the rainforest, the very thing that we're being accused of, we're not even doing here. um, the best way to do that is by having higher yields on productive acres. And you can do that through bio, uh, through, through genetically engineered food crops. Holy shit. You know that somebody lost their job at World Wildlife Fund, because <laughs> even though that's all true, feelings trump truth. And you know that some big donor that's, you know, yep. Sam Walton's granddaughter that's worth a billion dollars that thinks she's a tree hugger probably said, I'm going to have you fired if I keep giving money to World Wildlife Fund. So it's yep. not only the th- strange bedfellows, it's that some of these groups are terrified to take a stand for facts because the donations dry up. Well, absolutely. I mean, their, their reason for being is to have something to fight against. Right. right. Um, and, and if there's nothing to fight against, uh, then 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 their, their donations dry up and, and people lose interest. Um, and so they got to keep the fight going. And the problem is they can't even necessarily, Jeff, embrace facts because once they do, right. again, the, the billionaire daughter of Sam Walton that's sitting on Walmart uh, trust fund money says, well, I'm going to give you $10 million every year, but not unless you oppose ethanol or right. GMOs or whatever. And they say, ah, oh, shit, I guess we, we got to keep the money train coming in. Otherwise we all go get real jobs and we don't want to do that here at the national wildlife <laughs> Federation. Right. No, that, that is how it feels. It, it feels like uh, some of these same myths and misinformation stuff that we, we have, you know, debunked time and time again, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, <laughs> it gets recycled periodically by these same groups, because again, they got to keep that, 
um, keep their donors excited about this problem that they are trying to solve and this, you know, this, this crusade that they're on. Uh, so we so basically have, what you're saying is being opposed to ethanol is kind of like bell bottoms. It, it ain't pretty, <laughs> but every 20 years, they're going to come back with it, right? It's, every 20 years, bell bottoms come back. Every 20 years, being opposed to ethanol comes back into that's being right. stylish. And, and every time it comes back, you know, fewer and fewer people embrace it. And it looks worse every time. And I, and I think that's what's happening. You know, you talked about nobody's really talking about GMOs anymore. You get to a point where it doesn't matter. We're getting close to that with some of this ethanol stuff. Uh, you know, we still hear the attacks, but I think people have seen, eh, you know, people are more skeptical of some of the nonsense they're hearing uh, from some of these environmental groups uh, today and, and what they're hearing from the oil companies. And I think they understand the motivations behind some of these claims uh, at this point. Um, I don't disagree. And uh, I think I, I'm, I'm worried about uh, humanity that they still do fall for what's looking increasingly Orwellian. Uh, and, uh, when the media, when the, you know, uh, I saw something on social media, a smart person said, we've always been at war with Oceana. And I thought, good God, he gets it, which is of course a line from Orwell's 1984, yep. where when, uh, when history changes, they just go, when, when, when facts don't suit the narrative, you just go and burn all the books and put in, uh, and change the change, what history apparently is. We're yep. doing that uh, increasingly. A question for farmers and agricultural landowners. Have you ever lost yield to unexpected pest or disease? Well, of course you have, because every season you're forced to guess about some of the most important management decisions. But now you don't have to guess. Pattern Ag offers the most advanced soil analysis available today. In addition to a comprehensive nutrient analysis, like any soil sample survey is going to do for you, Pattern can predict next season's risk from the most damaging of pests and diseases, including corn rootworm, soybean cyst nematode, sudden death syndrome, and more. So for the first time ever, a single soil analysis can help you optimize your crop protection and fertility spend at a subfield, field, and operational level. Time to refine your management decisions. Time to optimize your inputs and maximize your yield. Simply go to www.pattern.ag and get started today. Let's talk a little bit about the history, speaking of which, of ethanol. I told you it was invented uh, largely as a way to burn up corn. It has grown even beyond what I anticipated. And, uh, and you know, there's going to be the people that say, well, it's this damn renewable fuel standard. It was what, 2005 renewable fuels? Yep, yep, that was that, the original program, yep. That dictated that we have to put ethanol into some of our stuff. Um, that still is there. It's still a hot button. The refiners, the, the oil money goes and gets exemptions around having to do that, which then decreases the amount of demand for ethanol. Kind of bring me from history up to till now. What's it look like and what's consumption even look like in the year 2022? Yeah. So we, you know, last time we talked, we were, uh, you know, two years ago, kind of in, in, the, in the midst of the, the pandemic and the effect that that had on our industry. We've really bounced back uh, from, from that, and we have the industry kind of running at pre-pandemic levels again today. And, and we're producing, we expect to produce somewhere between 15 and a half and 16 billion gallons of ethanol this year. Um, so again, you talk about what a significant market for corn that is. So you're talking about 5 billion bushels plus of corn consumption by the ethanol industry. Now, not all of that becomes ethanol. About a third of that corn, of course, becomes the distiller's grains and, and corn oil and other uh, co is that a good Is that a good number? Like the person that's my buddy in the suburbs of Chicago listening to this, 5 billion. We produced last year about 14 to 15 billion bushels. Yep. 
So okay. it's about 35 to 38% of the corn crop in the United States goes to ethanol, but it doesn't just go there and get done. We bring back byproducts, dried distiller grains. And what are the other products? Byproducts? Absolutely. Yeah. So when you put a, a 56 pound bushel of corn into the front end of an ethanol plant, you're going to get about close to three gallons of ethanol. And that right. comes from the starch that's in the corn, right? right. Uh, then you're going to get about 16 to 17 pounds of distiller's grains. And that's the, the protein and the fat and the fiber that was in that original corn. That's concentrated and that becomes the animal feed. Uh, increasing say out of 56 pounds, that's about, about 16, 17 pounds comes. Okay. Back. So about a fourth of a, about a fourth of what went in a third to a fourth of it comes back out. And yeah, yeah, we use that for animal feed as a protein source, because to the average listener, that's maybe not all about this. Uh, a corn kernel is about 80% carbohydrate and the rest being some protein, a little bit of fat. Am I right? Yep. That, that's right. And what we're seeing now with, with uh, you know, most ethanol plants are, are taking some of the fat that's in that corn kernel and, uh, you know, and, and turning it into corn oil, distillers corn oil as well. And some of that goes directly into the poultry feed uh, market. Some of it is used as a feedstock for biodiesel or renewable diesel. Okay. So um, the oil, the oil that comes from some of your plants that you represent doesn't typically end up in human consumption. It, no. It's a byproduct from the ethanol, but it is suitable for animal feed because it's an oil and, and, mm -hmm. or for some other use, like you said, biodiesel using an oil source. Yep. So 5 billion bushels of the, so like you said, 35, 38% of the corn crop goes into the ethanol plant, but about uh, a, a third of that comes back out in some other form. So it's a tremendous product. Got a spike in 05 with the renewable fuel standard. Yep. Where, where are we today versus pre-05? Are we doing double the amount of ethanol? Uh, versus 05, we are probably quadruple the amount of ethanol that we were producing in, in 2005. We were somewhere around three and a half or four billion gallons of annual production in 2005. So the RFS really created this, this environment where investors felt like, yeah, there's going to be a market for, for this product. Mm -hmm. And so they went out and they raised money and they built these ethanol plants and it really created that uh, you know, safety net. And that's maybe not the best term to use, but it created that foundation for them to, to sink their dollars into this sector. About two, I, I think I remember when we talked two years ago, about 200 ethanol facilities, mostly in the Corn Belt, of course, because that's where the corn is. And about half of those produced CO2 as a byproduct and half did not. Is that my, my memory certainly you're, correct? You're, you're real close. There are about 200 ethanol plants, most in the Corn Belt. Um, the, the number of plants today that are capturing the CO2, because that's the other thing that happens during fermentation, is you get about 17 pounds of CO2. Uh, it's it's closer to 25, 30 percent of the industry that's capturing CO2 today. And as we talked about a few years ago, that CO2 is an essential product yeah. that people don't even really think about. Until welding it's not there, welding, right? industrial applications, healthcare, and then, of course, food and beverage for like your your soft drinks. Absolutely. Wastewater treatment you could throw on there. Uh, dry ice production. Uh, you know, meat processing, which, which fits into food and beverage. So it is a, a very uh, important product with a lot of uh, important uses. And, and the ethanol industry is the nation's largest supplier of industrial CO2 for, for all those different customers. So Jeff, besides the, um, <laughs> the strange bedfellows of you've got environmental groups teaming up with oil companies, and incidentally, this is not the first time. 
the media doesn't play much because the media plays down to the dumbest level or whatever they can motivate the individuals to do. Unfortunately, I saw one story about this and I said, of course, some of us that always look behind the scenes again, follow the money and what's the real purpose. Putin funded environmental groups in Europe to oppose energy production in Europe under environmental grounds. Why would you do that if you're Russia? Oh, go ahead and fill in the, the listener in case they're wondering, is that true? And why would such a thing happen? And you know the reason. Well, we, we, we certainly have seen those articles and, and the analysis that suggests, yes, Russia was pouring money into uh, efforts to oppose domestic energy production within the European Union. Why? Uh, so the European countries would be dependent on yeah. Russia for oil and gas. And we're seeing the result of that right now when, when about 30 to 40 percent of the fossil fuel energy that Europe uses comes from Russia. And now you've got sanctions and you got high prices and everything else going on. I mean, it is putting a major squeeze on their economy. And and so, you know, we think that's a really good reminder of why we need to be doing more here domestically to insulate ourselves from that same sort of situation, whether it's uh, producing more domestic biofuels like ethanol, or guess what? We're not opposed to increasing uh, production of, of fossil fuels domestically, if it's done in a responsible way. Uh, we, we, we all need to work together to truly enhance our energy security in this country. And unfortunately, we're not there yet, right? So, when, a, when a madman half a world away can invade Ukraine and it jacks up our pump prices here by a dollar a gallon, we still have a problem. Uh, more than a dollar, but yes. Incidentally, yeah. when, I, when I'm accused of uh, anti-modern ag people that I'm a mouthpiece for Monsanto used to say that shit to me all the time, or that I'm just a spokesperson for big ag. You know, the real easy counterpoint is, well, who's responsible for the messaging that you seem to be fighting for? And they don't understand that. There are many readers of the Atlantic that believe themselves to be well-educated, intelligent, and and they are, and and well-off, and they are. That's, That's who their readership is, that believe themselves to not be influenced by outside sources. And if you told them, do you realize... Russia got environmentalists to run around carrying signs and protesting to do away with domestic energy production under the guise of it's better for the environment because it benefited Russian fossil fuel production. So, hey, dumbass, be careful (laughs) about what protest sign you think you're carrying because you might just be nothing more than a useful idiot and a pawn for a greater cause. And if you told the National Wild Federation membership that they would they would bristle. But it's like you might just be being a cog in the wheel right now, a bigger PR agenda by fossil fuel. That, that's that's right. And 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 you know these folks uh, that we're dealing with have incredibly effective PR machines and, and firms at work that that you know that go to the Atlantic and they go to Fox News and they go to these other major media outlets and they pitch the producers or pitch the editors on these stories, right? Yeah. Um, and it's basically free advertising. It's, it's, they call it earned media, uh, but it's, it's these major media outlets, you know, doing the bidding of, of these, uh, uh, these parties that are trying to, trying to do harm to us. So uh, we absolutely see that. And it's, it's a hard thing to fight against. Very sophisticated. Yeah, it is. So uh, I just put on social media a couple of hours ago when I was reading that uh, the Biden administration is asking for essentially wartime powers legislation to amp up and ramp up mining 
fast track lithium, cadmium, nickel, uh, and uh, uh, what's the other one? It begins with the B. Uh, it's another heavy metal that's a nasty shit that we, you know, you you'd yeah. be terrified if it was somehow laying in your living room, but you think it's great because it's going to go into electric car batteries. So the alleged environmentalism of electric cars, what do electric cars run off of? Well, again, the average idiot thinks they just plug it into the wall and it magically, the electricity just magically comes out of a socket. But the reality is you've got to have electric source and you've got this ton battery encased in plastic, which may or may not be recyclable or even recycled if it were recyclable. And we're throwing boron or, a, 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 like I said, a, cadmium nickel lithium you know name the name the chemicals that are in this thing and we're going to amp up mining of that and somehow where's the national wildlife federation saying wait a minute you're going to go out and start strip mining in some of the most environmentally sensitive areas of the north american continent but that's all for the good of the environment and somehow nobody's connecting these dots jeff no it's it it is absurd and you're you're absolutely right you know people think and and part of the reason they think it is because groups like the National Wildlife Federation say it. They, they think that, you know, these are zero emissions vehicles. There's no tailpipe on these these electric cars. So there's zero emissions. Well, the they're, vehicle they're, technically is, but everything right. up until that point is terrible for the environment. Where is the electricity coming from that is charging the battery that is running your car? Uh, right again, now in the United States, 60 percent of it is coming from, guess what? Fossil fuels. Yeah. Coal, natural gas. Well, and um, I said strip mining, you know, look at the cornfields there by in my neighborhood in Indiana and then tell me that we've been doing that for a couple hundred years. And no, we didn't just bulldoze the woods to make that happen. And that versus now we're going to go to an area that is environmentally sensitive because it's where we do mining for things like cadmium <laughs> is usually a pretty delicate ecosystem and we're going to go in there and just start strip mining the same people that want you to not have coal mines in west virginia are cheering on cadmium mines in nevada and and not only that we don't here in the united states really have all that much of those rare minerals that you need for for batteries guess who controls the the overwhelming majority of the world's resources when it comes to rare earth minerals of course, China. it's China. So yeah. imagine, and now here's a big kicky here, and I would love my ag people to just, just, the next time you're having drinks with non-ag people, do me this favor. Say, hey, you probably heard that ethanol is really bad for the environment. Yeah, I did hear that. And say, so guess what? What if China is controlling that messaging? And then use the Russia example, funding environmental groups in Europe yep. to protest against domestic energy production, which they did. Domestic energy production shuts down, and Russia literally has Europe over the barrel of oil. And what if China is secretly then uh, uh, funding the propaganda machine against ethanol because it's good for electric vehicles, which of course is good for demand of precious minerals and heavy metals, which they, they don't, they don't really mind mining, mining over there because they don't care if it runs, if, if if lithium runs into the Yangtze river and kills people, they got people to burn. Right. And, And guess where we import a lot of the parts that go into our, uh, electric vehicles from they, they those are made in China. Yeah. So so yeah, I, I, you know th- that's how these PR battles are fought. And and you're right. I mean it. it if you look behind the curtain um, and, and connect the dots, it's it's not always that difficult to see who's really pushing some of this stuff. Follow the money. Follow the money. I've pointed out when Bill Gates and uh, Bezos and Musk uh, own. Uh, lithium mines in third world countries in South America, where you know they're not doing any environmental compliance. You tell me that this is about saving the world and the environment. No, it's about 
oligarchs profiteering. And I think they're also controlling the messaging. So your thoughts on how ethanol wins. Do we, or are we just truly going to be shut out? Because how do we fight uh, China and Russia and uh, the oligarchs like uh, Gates that are controlling the messaging against ethanol? Well, I'm, you know, I'm going to go back to your, your analogy on, on milk, right? Um, and, and the GMO discussion that, that we had a, a few minutes ago. Um, consumers care about one thing primarily, and that is their pocketbook. Um, and, and right now, uh, you've got ethanol priced a dollar a gallon below gasoline. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and there is, you know, the, the, the administration is out there turning over every rock they can looking for ways to bring down gas prices. Well, using more ethanol would be the easiest way to do that. And by the way, it would also be the most environmentally responsible way to do that. So I guess, you know, I, I say all that because our view here is, look, the product that our industry is making day in, day out is a good product. Um, it's low carbon, it's low cost, it's, it's American made, um, it supports agriculture. And, and we think, you know, ultimately those, those values, those characteristics are going to win out. We think there's going to be a role uh, for ethanol long-term mm-hmm. in our transportation uh, fuels infrastructure here in the US. Uh, will we continue to grow? I think we will. Um, we're not going to see that sort of hockey stick growth that we saw uh, after 2005 when the RFS was adopted and expanded. Uh, but we, we see strong demand and, and a very strong value proposition for this product uh, decades to come. I, I hope that's true. And uh, my concern is uh, the senile puppet, I'm sorry, the president signed uh, a executive uh, wish list. It's not even really anything binding that uh, we're supposed to be all electric cars by 2030. So that's eight years from now. Uh, governor of Washington State, who is a loon, uh, actually hasn't acted legislation that allegedly they're going to be all electric in eight years. I don't think those are even close to attainable. I, I mean, if you just put the if it was a, if, if we ramped up like we did for World War II, I don't think it would even be possible to change. However, what do we make? Uh, you know, 20 million cars in the United States of America. 17 million vehicles are sold every year. something like that. Is it 20? It's about 20 or 22 or something like that. Yeah. yeah, And we've got 270 million registered vehicles on the roads today uh, in in this country. You're not going to turn that fleet over overnight. You're not going to turn it over in 10 years. No, but it's a real big push. I mean, I think the push is bigger than us. And the point that I would make, and I've made it to my ag people, unfortunately, I don't think corn farmers in Nebraska can beat Exxon. I don't think uh, the, the Ethanol Association of Iowa can take on China, who wants us to continue to fight amongst ourselves and then push electric vehicles, which are very good for them. It gives them more uh, autonomy. It weakens our independence. And also it makes us keep buying our crap. So I'm worried about the fight that we are outgunned. And maybe this will will give you some some comfort. What what we've been seeing here in the last few years, uh, really kind of coming out of the pandemic, um, is is companies like Exxon and, and big global behemoth energy companies are recognizing that, hey, the pendulum has swung on climate policy and reducing carbon emissions. Um, And and I think more of them are coming to grips with the fact that they've got to do something to reduce the carbon intensity of their products. Mm -hmm. Um, So as they survey the landscape and kind of look around at what options they have to reduce carbon emissions, man, ethanol rises to the top of that list because it's low cost and it's broadly available. We have the assets in place today to produce 17 billion gallons here in the U.S. 
And so whether that ethanol is, it continues to just go into gasoline like it has for the last 40 years, or whether it's used as a low carbon building block for some other fuel or some other chemical, uh, refiners are really looking into that right now. And, and so, yeah, I think we are going to see some of these partnerships develop. I don't know if you noticed, but you know, one of the largest biodiesel producers in the country, uh, REG, just recently sold out to one of those big oil refining companies. So there is, um, you know, maybe that it, we, we've been button heads and fighting each other for 40 years, but, but we may be approaching that time where uh, all of us liquid fuel producers uh, start to band together to put the lowest carbon, lowest cost, best product on the market we can uh, to c- compete with electric vehicles and some of the other products coming out there. Which, of course, then puts you at odds with Musk, Bezos, and Gates, and and that whole, uh, and, <laughs> yep. and God knows, again, follow the money. Last question for you. Uh, we're talking about $7 corn, hell, maybe eight. I mean, things and, and acres are going to be down because of input availability and input pricing. So we're going to produce maybe less corn because of less acres and then obviously some weather. Uh, Does ethanol make sense when we're talking about $8 corn? Can I take $8 corn? Shouldn't I just be feeding it to chickens instead? Uh, Does it still make sense? I'll tell you uh, the the, the answer to that question depends on what are, what are oil prices doing? And and we know the answer to that is oil prices are well above a hundred dollars a barrel where they've been as high as 130, 125 in, in recent weeks. And guess what? $7 corn, $8 corn uh, can, can work. And, and ethanol producers can still make a decent margin uh, when oil prices are that high because we can still make ethanol, sell it for $2.50 a gallon. That's far less than what you're going to pay for gasoline. And so the blending economics are still attractive um, and, and it, it, it all pencils out. Now, if oil prices come crashing down and we've got $7 corn or $8 corn, that's a much different situation. Yeah. So as long as if we're talking hundred dollar crude and seven to eight dollar corn, it makes sense. If we're talking sixty eight dollar barrel crude and still we're at seven dollar corn. The economics don't favor it. So then they operate a loss or they cut back on production. That's right. Or, or try and charge more for the byproducts. Yep. Yep. That's right. And and we've you know uh, that's just <laughs> when you're in a uh, you know commodity we're dependent on on volatile commodities on the front end of the process and and volatile commodity markets on the back end. Uh, so we've been through this before. We've we've been through droughts. We've been through you know any number of uh, black swan events that have affected our markets, and we always pull through. So this is just another one. Uh, but but yeah, it's we're certainly keeping a a watchful eye on, on what the, these markets are doing every day. And, and, you know, happen to notice that just today as Biden announced that he's going to open the strategic petroleum reserve. I mean, that, that sort of torpedoed oil prices today. So yeah, it's, it's another, just another propaganda, the strategic oil reserve is like, uh, like a eight hours worth of our demand. I mean, it's like, it's like, it's like one day, one day's worth of supply Okay, big deal. Uh, but anyway, it's, it's like uh, the, it's like the fat person that goes through the buffet and puts fourteen thousand calories of food on their plate and then says diet coke. I mean, it's just it's, it's just it's inconsequential to the real problem. His name's Jeff Cooper. He's the president and CEO of Renewable Fuels Association. He's the most fun person you'll ever talk about ethanol with. I'm convinced of it. That's why I've had him on here now twice. Again, go back and find the old episode. It's about uh, it's about the ethanol and and the carryover effect. 
effect of ethanol production was down. So what else did it do to the marketplace? We talked about things like CO2 back then. This time we're talking about electric vehicles, strange bedfellows, National Wild Feder- Wildlife Federation and, and Greg Feld teaming up with the Atlantic and Mother Jones, which is a loon magazine, if you didn't know that. Uh, Mr. Cooper, if they want to learn more about what you do, where do they find you? Yeah, we've, we've got a great website, ethanolrfa.org is our website. Any fact you'd ever want to know about uh, the ethanol industry, locations of all these facilities, uh, lots of information about, you know, policy that affects our industry and, and statistics, anything else you'd ever want to know, that's ethanolrfa.org. Which means now that they can go in there and find where all the facilities are. So all the people that I just called loons that read Mother Jones are going to be able to go and protest there. And I'd say all the <laughs> readers of the Atlantic that I've said are east or, or coastal elites that lean left, that make a lot of money and believe themselves to be more intelligent than the rest of us that call us flower country. They'd have to find they have to find them on a map and say, wait a minute, do you know there's there's a place called Indiana? We're going to go there and protest. Uh, well, I know that we have a few members that would be happy to take them on a tour of their facility. So if they show up, if they show up in their skinny jeans, driving a Prius, you're still going to give them the tour. Anyway, his name is Jeff Cooper. Uh, He's a good dude. And I don't say about very many people, but anyway, uh, please share this with your non-ag folks, because this is a hot topic you're going to hear more of. And I think the bigger moral of the story is here. Who's controlling the messaging that you are hearing and always follow the money. Thanks for being here, my friend. Thank you, Damien. It's been All fun. Right. Until, te- until next time, it's the business of agriculture. This episode of the business of agriculture was brought to you by Nori. If you're feeling left out of carbon markets, Nori is a carbon removal marketplace that welcomes early adopters of regenerative farming. We work directly with farmers to enter their data and project their carbon credits, which the farmer owns and sets the price on. Nori is the marketplace, not the middleman, so farmers get paid directly once their credits are sold. We believe that carbon credits should be an asset the farmer controls, not the rights that they sell. To learn more on how you can enroll your farm, visit nori.com growers. And if you are a company looking to get involved with carbon markets, reach out to hello at nori.com. Nori, a carbon marketplace for early adopters. Visit nori.com growers.